Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. My guest today is Janine Yunus. Janine is a criminal defense attorney in New York City. Wow, courageous, impressive. Janine, thanks for coming on to my podcast today. Thanks for having me. What's it like being a criminal defense attorney in New York? Oh, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's sometimes tough as um, I do criminal appeals. So it's not trial work, which is what I think most people picture when they think of uh, public defenders. Um, so I'd mostly do writing and research and write briefs for clients who are already incarcerated, uh, mostly upstate. So I don't actually meet my clients very often with a few exceptions. I do um, a few trial level proceedings, but most of my time is spent writing and researching and I correspond with most of my clients through written mail. So it's it's not sort of the day-to-day exciting thing you see on Law & Order. <laughs> well, but I bet you stay very busy, especially in New York City. Oh yeah, yeah. We have a lot of cases, very heavy caseload. And, well, uh, you're a public servant, and I thank you for your work. I certainly uh, couldn't handle it, so uh, much appreciated. Oh, thank you. So we're going to start things off today. It's a little different. We're going to do the Proust questionnaire. And the Proust questionnaire, it has its origins in a parlor game. It was popularized by Marcel Proust. He was a French essayist and novelist who believed that in answering these questions, an individual reveals her true nature. Are you ready for that? Yes. <laughs> okay, number one, what is your idea of perfect happiness? Um, having the freedom to pursue whatever I want to pursue and being in good health. I think being in good health is really important. Otherwise, the freedom part isn't really that great. <laughs> Absolutely. What is your greatest fear? Uh, well, I'd say it sort of dovetails with that, um, having my freedom restricted, the freedom to, you know, live my life to the fullest, um, and dying of cancer. That's your greatest fear. Okay. <laughs> what is the trait that you most deplore in yourself? In myself? Um, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. Actually, I would say I'm a lot of a contrarian. So uh, I think that can get annoying to my friends and family. <laughs> I always like to take the opposite view. I also am not a morning person. So I like to sleep in a lot, which is not like the best. <laughs> I would rather be an early bird. Whatever works for you. And that <laughs> makes you a good lawyer, by the way. And you uh, challenge everything. Which living person do you most admire? Um, actually, I'm going to have to say, I can't narrow it down to one. There are three at the moment. Uh, Martin Kuldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, and Sinatra Gupta were the three authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, 
which was a document written uh, advocating focus protection and lockdowns, which is you know where we devote resources to protecting the vulnerable instead of locking down all of society. And it recognizes the um, harms done through locking down uh, society broadly. And I know these scientists, they're all amazing, incredible epidemiologists, and they've endured so much um, vitriol and smearing throughout the last six or seven months. Um, and actually before that, when they were just speaking out about um, the lockdowns and the harms that they were doing to society broadly. So despite uh, all of the difficulties they've endured, they've um, done what they thought was right and what I think is right too. So all three of them. <laughs> yes. And one of them is a doctor at Stanford, correct? Yeah, that's Jay Bhattacharya. Yeah. Yeah, very impressive. I've been following him and that's well said and it, it does a lot of damage to the middle class and the lower class and the working class and it seems like the rich people are doing well in the lockdowns, but everyone else isn't. Yep, exactly. The Zoom class. <laughs> yes, the Zoom class. And the children. We're, we're harming our children greatly. Okay, next question is, what is your greatest extravagance? Um, oh, I buy way too many clothes, so <laughs> definitely. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Ooh, this next one's going to be interesting. On what occasion do you lie? Um, to spare people's feelings for the most part. Um, I, I lie a lot to spare people's feelings. Um, that's about it for the most part. I'm pretty honest. That's good. Like, you know, if one of your friends says, how do I look tonight? And maybe not looking <laughs> their sharpest. Exactly. Okay. That's good. <laughs> that works. That's okay. I mean, maybe things a little more, you know, uh, for instance, well, at the beginning of the lockdowns, when I refused to comply with the, uh, you know, social distancing, I would go to parties and stuff and then <laughs> tell people, you know, I wasn't honest about it. So I was like, why do they need to know when they're just going to get upset? <laughs> right. All right. The next one, which living person do you most despise? Oh, that is so easy. Anthony Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a charlatan. He doesn't know what he's doing. I think he's also just completely arrogant egoist. I think a lot of this just has to do with him wanting to be in front of the camera and a lot of his mandates have to do with that. And he's willing to basically throw working class, poor middle class people under the bus just to get attention. And he <laughs> lied, he lied to the American people oh, yeah. uh, any of this with, with respect to masks, right? Yep masks and all sorts. I mean, he, he said that he lied, he's lied about herd immunity because he doesn't, he, I, I forgot exactly what the context was, but he's just manipulating yeah. the truth all the time. Yeah, he first said masks are not good or something to that effect. Um, and when later pressed on it, he, he said that he made that statement to protect, um, I think the medical community to save masks for them, but yeah. I, I just, I'm not buying it. it. And either way, however you try to defend yourself, lying to the american people is just wrong no and i so i actually think he's lying about the masks now i think he knows they don't really work the way that they're used sort of masking of the general population especially outside i think he knows that but it's just some thing they've decided on i don't know yeah <laughs> double and triple masks and well now yeah it is getting a bit out of hand you know i didn't I still don't really have a problem with the masks until the vaccine is available to everyone. I think it's a pretty low infringement on your rights. It's a lot different than shutting down a business 
or shutting down a school. Um, but uh, I, I did read something else about Dr. Fauci that he makes more money than the president. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I read that as well. Yeah, I think he's the highest paid person in government in the United States. Yeah, and he's just on CNN all day. It's like every time yeah. I turn on the channel, he's on, he's on the news. Yeah. Okay, well, that was an easy one. Next one, which words or phrases do you most overuse? Oh, indeed. In writing, all my supervisors are always telling you, take out is <laughs> indeed every other paragraph. <laughs> all right, indeed. Well, let's m move on to the next one. When and where were you the happiest? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Mexico City, maybe I was there a couple of years ago. I love Mexico City. It's, I think it's the most beautiful place on earth and it's so much fun and um, people are so nice. So, oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I am part Mexican and I've traveled ah. to Mexico and I love Mexico. Um, Costa Rica is pretty cool too. I don't know if you've yeah. ever been to Costa Rica. I, I did go there. That was a, a lot longer ago. I, I do look at like cities, so I didn't go to I didn't go to a city in Costa Rica. I think I, was, I forgot where, what it was called. It was some, something in the Caribbean, but yeah, beautiful, yeah. cheap and beautiful. I could definitely yeah. retire there one day. Yeah, and there's a lot of good surfing in uh, Costa Rica as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what drove me the craziest about the lockdowns. I'm a surfer, and for uh, a weeks out here, you could not go surfing. That's so insane. <laughs> and they so shut, it is so crazy. people to go <laughs> absolutely get some vitamin d you're outside you're getting exercise they shut down the beaches for a while you couldn't go surfing for a while and that just makes no sense at all no it doesn't um i actually just wrote an article about this or co-authored with another woman um about how a lot of the mandates have actually had that opposite effect. Uh, and people are eating more because they're stressed and at home, depressed and isolated. And so people are gaining a lot of weight, which is actually putting more people in the high risk group. Oh, <laughs> so a lot of the mandates are just having the opposite effect of what they should be. That's what happens when the, the government gets too involved. It often backfires. Let, yep. you know, it's so paternalistic. People will do the right thing. Trust the American people. Yes. We're so. smart. We know what we're doing. It's yeah. just it's crazy yep all right which talent would you most like to have oh that's a good question um i wish i was a better dancer i'm not a great dancer i'd like to be more graceful <laughs> fair enough <laughs> if you could change one thing about yourself what would it be um well sort of like i said earlier i would like to be a morning person i think it makes you more efficient i wish i loved to get up at six o'clock I can go for a run and <laughs> then get to work, but it usually happens about three hours later. Well, whatever works for you. I mean, you're very accomplished, so um, keep at it. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, that's that's a difficult question. I've a, I had a couple of cases where I think you know the client had committed not a terribly serious crime and um, was being deported because of the criminal conviction away from his uh, family. Um, in most cases, it's people who've been here for decades came here as two or three of them had come here as children. Um, so it's obviously a very sad situation. And I was able to help get the convictions reversed so that they didn't have to be deported. So 
I'm proud of that work. Um, I'm also quite proud of my anti-lockdown activism, um, which I started writing uh, about lockdowns or against lockdowns, I should say, for AIER about six or seven months ago. And uh, I hope I've made a difference. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. it's definitely noble what you've done. I love your Twitter handle. It's lefty lockdown skeptic. Yeah. And there needs to be more people on the left um, speaking out about the lockdowns because it impacts yeah. all of us. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's noble work. If you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what would it be? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, maybe a, some kind of bird. <laughs> Always wanted to know what it would be like to fly. <laughs> or a dolphin. I don't know. That seems fun too. <laughs> Probably not a person. I don't know if humans are like the best. I don't know. We're too conscious and aware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, exactly. I've been going down a rabbit hole um, with aliens and uh, I wish I didn't, but that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. <laughs> dolphin. dolphin sounds pretty fun. Just chill out in the ocean all day. Yeah. And they like, you know, they sort of leap up and it seems pretty cool. So, yeah. They seem happy too. Yeah. Don't they? They <laughs> Where would you most like to live? Oh, um, I mean, there are a few places I really, I like, as I mentioned, I would consider Mexico City. I really like Switzerland. I spent a lot of time there. Um, and I like uh, Italy a lot. So I don't know. All three of those are. Okay. I could just pack up and move and not have to worry about earning a living. <laughs> Was it Switzerland or Sweden that basically did no lockdowns? Can't, I always so Sweden didn't um, didn't really lock down. They uh, they sort of asked sort of what you were talking about before. They uh, asked people to you know be sensible and socially distance, and if you had an office job, try to work from home. But they didn't really do that many governmental restrictions. They did. I believe they closed high schools and colleges. Um, Switzerland actually is interesting because because they did lock down at first, but I um, there I forgot if it's all the cantons or a couple of them, but they decided to reject lockdowns forever, like in any future pandemic. So now they're not doing them anymore. Okay, and it worked out for them, right? They had yeah. a relatively low uh, death rate and hospitalization rate, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have a healthier population to all of those countries too. You know, it's part of the problem. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I think there was a new study that said something like um, countries with a, a lot of obesity, I think it's like 50% obesity or something like that, had 10 times the death rate of countries that didn't. Yeah, I think most people that end up in the ER have are either obese and or have a vitamin D deficiency. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's something we didn't really talk about. Um, we need to get in better shape. We need to eat right and we need to exercise. All right, next question. Besides being a lawyer, if you could have any other occupation, what would it be? Um, a writer. I really like to write, so um, both fiction and nonfiction. So cool. if I didn't have to worry about money, I would probably just try to be a novelist. <laughs> All right, last question on the Proust questionnaire. Which historical figure do you most identify with? Um, Maybe, okay, obviously I know I'm not nearly as accomplished <laughs> insinuate that at all, but maybe someone like Susan B. Anthony who took a you know, unpopular position during her lifetime, but that she was uh, certain was the morally correct one. 
Absolutely. That's how I feel about the lockdown. That's a great answer. I like that one. Oh, thank you. All right. Now I want to ask you, why did you want to become a public defender? Um, a few reasons. I really, well, I'll say first I'm a contrarian, as I mentioned before. So <laughs> I like the idea of sort of defending the people nobody else wants to defend um, and trying to find something, trying to find the humanity in everybody, I guess. Um, I also firmly believe in the right of everybody to a defense. It's really important. It's one of the fundamental principles upon which this country was founded. Um, and um, also, you know, there's all the racial and social justice issues uh, and inequality issues um, where, you know, a lot of minorities, especially in poor people don't have access to good attorneys. So I wanted to be able to give them as good representation as I could. That's great. What is your favorite and least favorite part of the job? That it's hard for me to come up with one answer uh, to that. Um, losing cases is really hard, um, especially, you know, I have a lot of clients who have like 25 year sentences or something and writing the letter to the client saying, I'm so sorry, the appellate division just affirmed your conviction and this is the end of the line for you. Um, that's obviously a very difficult part. Um, my favorite, so working with a lot of the clients um, and their families and, you know, being able to do something good for them is obviously the most rewarding part. So how do you answer this question from friends or family? I'm sure you get it a lot. Um, how do you fend people you know or think are guilty? Um, yes, I get that almost every day. <laughs> um, everybody has the right to a defense. And, you know, I, I think we all also often think in terms of like guilt or innocence uh, when the system is actually more complicated than that. So sometimes I'm, you know, fairly certain my client committed the crime, but he got a sentence that was absurd or it was something that really shouldn't have been prosecuted in the first place. I mean, I had one guy who was appeared on the camera to be drunk or high or something. And he walked up to a door and he tried to turn the knob and he couldn't get it open. And he went around to the other door and tried to do th the other that to the other door. And he got convicted of attempted burglary because technically, you know, that's sort of, and he got sentenced to like three years in prison for that. Wow. It's just absurd. I mean, it should never have been prosecuted, certainly not as a felony. And then the sentences. So, um, you know, it's, I think it's really important to that everybody has the opportunity to challenge their conviction, their sentence. And I, um, even if I believe my client committed the crime, and even if it was a heinous crime, which it often is, um, I'm happy to provide that representation. Yeah, that's a good point about sentencing. I think a lot of people forget that. So some people are, well, a lot of people are overcharged. And right. so, you know, maybe your client is guilty, but instead of giving them a 40-year a sentence, you know, maybe you fight for them to get five to 10 years and hopefully they turn their life around and get a second chance. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, have you ever felt like it's a dangerous job? Uh, not really. Um, partially because I do appeals. I think, I think, I do think there are uh, trial level public defenders who've had different experiences. I have, I mean, I do defend some very mentally ill people who committed some very violent crimes. And I've had letters that were not pleasant. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, I knew the person probably wasn't going to be able to carry out what they were threatening. So I didn't feel, I never felt too scared. But 
Well, and this is why I wanted to thank you in the beginning. And I've interviewed prosecutors uh, and I say the same thing to them. Um, this is a tough job. Somebody has to do it. You're a public servant and uh, it seems very stressful. So uh, thanks again for doing what you do. Oh, thank you. So do you think that the criminal justice system is broken in your experience working in it? Again, it's sort of, that's a pretty broad question. And I think that there's a lot of nuance. Um, if I had to give a yes or no answer, I would say yes, but different jurisdictions operate differently. And I think, um, you know, I, I see some, for instance, uh, we work in Brooklyn, uh, Queens and Staten Island and, um, the Brooklyn district attorney's office, I consider to be quite good. Um, they have a lot of integrity and I see less problems with overcharging or requesting insane sentences than I do in, um, some of the other counties. Um, but that said, there are a lot of problems. And I, um, I mean, I think one problem is just there are, too much, there are too many prosecutions. We shouldn't be prosecuting people for a lot of things they're being prosecuted for. This ends up with the plea bargaining system we have where like, I forgot what the statistics are, but something like 90% of cases are disposed of by guilty pleas. And, um, you know, a lot of plea, people plead guilty even when they're not just to avoid the hassle um, or prison time or whatever. Um, I think that the criminal justice system should be focused on serious violent crimes. And, you know, we should stop with all this little, you know, the guy who twisted the doorknob, <laughs> someone who has a little, you know, marijuana or cocaine or whatever is just shouldn't be prosecuted. <laughs> That's kind of what I see from the outside um, drugs and other nonviolent crimes. I mean, I don't know the stats, but I, I would guess that a large portion of the inmates are in there for drug offenses, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, just sort of a lot of low level. So I don't see as much of that personally because I do appeals. It's mostly people, you know, it takes, it takes a few years to, for an appeal to go through. So if you get a six month or a year sentence, I probably won't see your case because a lot of those people don't even bother appealing. Um, but, you know, I, I have friends who are trial public defenders. So I know from them that just, there are a lot of people sitting in prison or jail for really low level stuff. Oh, yeah. Marijuana. Yeah. Think yeah. About how many people are in prison today in our country for a marijuana conviction? Yeah. That's just I, I, really sad. Yeah. And uh, I think we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, which is really alarming because China and India, they have 1 billion with a B more people than us. Think yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing something wrong. Yeah, we are. Yeah. We are. All right. Well, how do we fix it? <laughs> um, well, I guess part of my last answer, I would... <laughs> I would say um, prosecute less. Uh, there should be more discretion. Um, judges also could, I think, play a role in saying, you know, come on. <laughs> this, you know, we don't really have to deal with this case in the criminal justice system. Um, uh, I mean, there are drug courts and stuff that I think, you know, where people are given more second chance and stuff that I think are, are a first step in the right direction, but there needs to be um, a lot, a lot more diversion too. And frankly, we should be helping people. <laughs> um, you know, the lockdowns have created a much worse homelessness situation in a lot of cities, New York, I think LA, I believe San Francisco as well. Um, so we've created more poverty, more people who don't have enough money to, to meet their basic needs. Um, 
So I think if you, I, I actually think that if you really want to fix the criminal justice system, we should help fewer people be poor. Yes, the economy, help the economy out, right? Yeah, we've done well, the opposite. <laughs> I have a philosophical question for you. Do you think the criminal justice system would be better if we got rid of private practice and, and just had public defenders for everyone? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've, uh, I think, I think my answer to that would be yes. I do, you know, I have some, I agree with capitalism to an extent. Like I do think, you know, maybe you should be able to go to the marketplace and get the attorney you want. But on the other hand, um, I think if we just had a robust public defender system and good public defenders, like I think my office, I would say is full of really excellent attorneys. Um, then it wouldn't be such an issue. And, and I do think there's something to be said for, you know, uh, this is the, this is people's lives. And I don't know if you should just be able to buy your way out of, not that it's always that easy, but um, I'm not sure if money should have the influence that it does in being able to secure representation. So I would answer that question with yes. Yeah. Although I do think it's complicated and I sort of see the argument on the other side. Yes, absolutely complicated. Um, I think you laid it out perfectly. This is a uh, capitalistic society and you should have the right to hire who you want to defend you. On the other hand, uh, the public defenders I've met, they are very bright and they do a great job, but the common theme I hear from them is that they are overworked, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the problem. Another thing that I can't wrap my head around is during a trial, why is the state allowed to make deals with defendants in exchange for testifying against other defendants. Um, the so-called jailhouse snitch, I think. Isn't this a conflict of interest? Um, conflict, of, I, I don't know that I considered it in those terms. Uh, I mean, I, I see why they do it. I've obviously worked on a fair number of cases where it happens. So, I mean, you have, I, I've had, I had a case where, um, you know, sort of, three-way murder plot and the only way that there was really going to be evidence against the two who were sort of the main actors was for the third cooperator so the, the third person who was part of the plot to testify because it was all based on sort of conversations the three had had there was not really any other evidence so i see why you know so they were willing to offer this guy 15 years i think in exchange for testifying against the other two and this was a very serious first degree murder case um so I kind of get it, actually. <laughs> um, it, it makes sense to me in certain in circumstances like that. It seems like the only option. But, and they do, there's a jury instruction that says, you know, you should view this person's testimony skeptically. They received a deal. The defense obviously has every opportunity to, in summation and even in opening statements during cross-examination to bring out the bias. So I don't have a huge problem with that, actually. <laughs> Well, that's good to know that they uh, that they're open about that. So if yeah, I mean, somebody I, I should be clear. I think that New York State. I I do think like well, I don't want to sound too much like an East Coast liberal, but I do think the blue a lot of the blue states have really better systems. I mean, I've I've heard of a lot of horror stories in other states where um, you know uh, the jailhouse snitch is allowed to testify, and the defense doesn't have access to 
you know, so I think as long as the defense is given access to everything the prosecution knows about this person and, and has every opportunity to cross-examine them and to talk about it in summation, I think it's okay. Okay. What is your most memorable case? Um, I've been doing this for nine years, so I've had a lot. It's hard to pick out one. I, I think I had one case that went to New York State's highest court. I mean, I've had a couple, but this one stuck in my head. And the guy had done something stupid, like fired a, off a gun, but nobody got hurt. And uh, I think it was at a party and they'd been drinking a little bit too much. And he, he was, but he was such a nice guy and he just made a stupid mistake. And he had a bunch of kids in the country. He was a non-citizen. So he was going to be deported because of the conviction. And I ended up winning the case. And um, he actually calls me, he called me the other day to, he's just called me a lot over the years to thank me and tell me I saved him and his family. And uh, so I don't know, that one stuck with me, I guess. <laughs> it's nice when your clients are grateful because I know uh, like 99% of my clients are very grateful, but it's like always the 1% I think about. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I get some not nice letters. <laughs> yes. But it's the good ones that make the job worthwhile. Another thing that is really intriguing to me is the insanity defense. Um, can you explain what that is to the layperson? Yeah, so every crime, um, I should say most crimes are strict liability crimes, which are an exception. There aren't a lot of them. It's composed of an actus reus and a mens rea. So if I stab you to death, um, my intent matters. It's not just the act. So if I stabbed you to death because you were pointing a gun at me, threatening to shoot me, most people would probably see that as self-defense. So likewise, if I'm so insane that I don't know what I'm doing um, and I stab you to death, uh, that is a defense. I, the, the prosecution wouldn't have made out the elements of the crime, which is the intent um, aspect. So, um, the, you know, it's not exactly the same in all states, but I believe it's a very high bar. It's very, very rarely, um, it's juries very rarely find that the defense satisfied it. So you usually have to show that you're so crazy that you really had no idea what you were doing. It's just so divorced from reality that you really didn't know what you were doing. So just being a little bit out of it or, you know, slightly mentally ill is not, is not going to do it. Got it. Yeah. Because the whole point of the system, you said it mens rea is we, we get inside somebody's mind. And so the whole point of it is to, you know, if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, if you're that insane, then what's the point in punishing that person? Is that kind of a fair way to look at it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and it's also, it just uh, is, I, I'm not sure that it works the same in all states. So I think in some states it's an affirmative defense. You know, actually, I think it might be an affirmative defense everywhere. That's different than, so the, if it's an affirmative defense, the defense has to show it by a certain, um, by you know a certain standard of proof so you have to the defense has to present evidence and convince the jury it's, you know usually it would be a psychiatrist or psychologist testifying that this person just had no idea what they were doing um, yeah i think some of the problems are there's a couple just horror stories of people who murder other people and and they get off on the insanity defense and they go to a mental institution but they get like day passes where they can go to the water park, they can go to the movies. And they, there's been a couple instances where they actually have ran into 
um, some of the victims. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see both sides to it. Uh, you know, mm. that would, uh, that would certainly be uh, stressful if you're a family member who, who ran into that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah, that is part of it as if you, you I, I shouldn't, I think it's always, if you, uh, if the jury finds that you were insane, you don't just go home, you go to a mental institution. And actually sometimes you can end up going there for like way longer than you would have been in prison. So, um, so your attorney has to really make that clear to you that uh, right. you might end up in a mental hospital for longer than you were, would have been in prison. But you could get released though, if, if they, you know, get you on the right meds and you're not, sure. is that yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So that, so then it's sort of up to the mental hospital, you know, when you are not insane anymore. <laughs> yeah. That is so fascinating. Um, but I guess it makes sense. It's a high burden, but if you can meet it, you don't know the difference between right and wrong. So why should we punish you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. What about the death penalty? Are you in favor of the death penalty? No, no, I'm, I'm very anti-death penalty <laughs> um, for a few reasons. I wouldn't say I'm not someone who's like, it is always morally wrong for the state to take a life. I don't think that I abide by that principle. But as a practical matter, there are far too many people who've been ended, who've ended up being executed who later turned out to be innocent or maybe innocent. Um, it's just too scary. Uh, the other thing is that it, it's actually very expensive. A lot of people don't realize that. You, you know, we rightly uh, provide so many opportunities for appeals and review of your case that it goes on for years and it actually costs like way more than it would cost to keep someone in prison for the rest of their life. So, and then, you know, spending the rest of your life in prison isn't great. <laughs> so between those three things, like fear of executing the wrong person and the fact that it's so expensive to carry this out the right way, and the fact, you know, we have an alternative that's like a way to punish people that's not that great, I see no need for it. And I just think we should do away with it altogether. Does New York practice capital punishment? No, it was outlawed. It was 2004, 2005. Um, no, it does, so it doesn't anymore. What about being a prosecutor? Have you ever thought about switching sides? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's not my cup of tea. I don't, I have prosecutor friends. So it's like some of my defense attorney friends are like very like, we'll not even be friends with prosecutors. We're different. I'm not like that. I have several prosecutor friends. It's just not my, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could do a lot of good though. If you're, if you're a good prosecutor, right? That's true. And I, I do believe that. Um, I, you know, I did consider working in the conviction integrity unit in a prosecutor's office. There was a job posting there. Um, so a lot of the prosecutor's offices in New York, I don't know if this is true throughout the country, but have established new units where they internally review cases um, to make sure that, you know, where there are now questions about the integrity of the conviction. Fascinating. Uh, never got into criminal law, um, but uh, it's so interesting to think about. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the lockdowns. As I mentioned earlier, I love your Twitter handle. Um, you come from the left, um, but now you're kind of a critic on the lockdowns. So just kind of explain that to me. How did you um, get to this point? Yeah. Um, so I really early on was doubtful that lockdowns were the right approach. Um, it was sort of an instinctive thing. I was just like, I mean, I don't know, aren't we going to do a lot of harm by taking kids out of school and shutting down businesses? And what about kids from abusive homes who now like no longer have any recourse or anyone else to talk to? Um, just so many things. People in third world countries were taking humanitarian aid out of those. 
vaccine programs in the developing world got canceled. Um, just so I saw so many harms and all the, I read like the New York, I read the New York Times and the New Yorker and listened to NPR and nobody was critical of this lockdown idea at all. So I was just like, what is going on? And I talked to people um, and nobody saw it at all. I, there was one article in the New York Times in a uh, early March by Dr. David Katz that said this might be worse, the cure might be worse than the disease. And I thought, okay, I'm not the only one in the entire world who thinks this. So I started Googling and I came across people like um, Alex Berenson and Jeffrey Tucker and some scientists like Martin Kuldorf, Sinatra Gupta, who all were saying the same thing. So I was like, okay, there are intelligent, sane people who also think this is crazy. And then I just started reading more and more. I started, I didn't have anything to do because nobody was doing anything. So after I finished work, I would like for four hours or something, I would start researching. I learned like quite a bit of about epidemiology and the history of pandemics. And um, this is just not how we typically manage pandemics. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, uh, especially with a disease that primarily kills the elderly. Uh, and I, as time went on, you know, and I just realized more and more no one was listening to me. I was really frustrated with my friends um, for not listening to me. Uh, you know, another thing that really tipped me off was Sweden. Um, like the New York Times kept by like April 7th or something, they were saying things, printing articles like Sweden, utter catastrophe, because they didn't really lock down. Um, and I was like, you know, it's April 7th. Um, this is a long term, long view. So they might have some more deaths up front. And they had a problem with nursing homes, which was a separate issue. Uh, so the fact that the, they were pouncing on Sweden so ready to, to declare it a failure um, suggested to me some, there was more going on than like just the science. <laughs> So, and then eventually I just got so frustrated. I started writing and I sent a piece to AIR and they published it and I got more and more involved in, with them and uh, they, their anti-lockdown cause. And what does that stand for, AIR? American Institute for Economic Research. Um, they, are, they are not, uh, I mean, they've been described as like a free market, Coke funded, whatever. They're not, they're, they are a free market um, research institute, but I don't have a whole lot in common with them other than the lockdown causes. And I, well, they, you know, they're for drug legalization and a lot of some, they, they believe in like no government interference. So when it comes to like, you know, um, women's rights to choose and stuff like that, we're on the same page. But when it comes to the market, we're not. <laughs> yeah. So what is life like in New York now? Have they eased some of the restrictions? Yeah, actually, life is pretty fine in New York right now. I've been complaining about it for a long time. So <laughs> um, it's fine for me since uh, I'm lucky to have my paycheck. Um, but they've opened indoor dining, which effectively means like you can go to a bar. It's a little, you can't sit at the bar. You can sit at a table, but it sort of works out the same. Um, you have to plan a little bit more. But it's actually, um, and then there's a lot of outdoor dining. So it's actually pretty, pretty fine right now. Um, a lot of masks, which I, I don't like. But <laughs> so, but once you're in there and eating, you could take it off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't like seeing masks on the street. I think it's, there's no evidence to support using, using them outdoors and everybody wears them on the street. And I feel like it makes, dehumanizes us. But um, I mean, so gyms and gyms, I don't go to the gym anymore because you have to wear a mask. So while you exercise, which I find very unpleasant. So um, that's annoying. I wish they would do away with that. Yeah. Uh, the thing that does drive me crazy about the masks is almost every day I see people when I'm driving in the car by themselves wearing the mask. I yeah. don't understand that. 
Yeah, I know. At first I was like, maybe they're just, they just forgot <laughs> or they're just lazy and they don't want to take it on. <laughs> I, I, I hope that's it. Because <laughs> uh, otherwise we really. And outdoors too. I went for a run yesterday along the coast here and I saw a guy wearing two different masks outdoors. That's a little extreme, but yeah. in terms of going into a grocery store or a pharmacy, I think that people should wear masks again until everyone has the chance to, to get the COVID vaccine, because I do know that a, a lot of our senior citizens aren't very tech savvy. You know, they can't yeah. order food online or, or do stuff. So they do have to go into the store and stuff like that. So I do think the masks are a good idea in those settings um, again, until the, vaccine is available for everyone. Yeah, I don't have the biggest problem with that, but I uh, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support that actually being an effective measure. Um, but I mean, my concern with masks is mostly outdoors. I think there's no evidence at all to suggest we should wear them. And then um, I think we haven't thought enough about what it's like for essential workers or, you know, cooks working, line cooks working in hot kitchens and children in school all day. Um, I think there are real problems with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but like when I cough in my hand with a mask and without a mask, I mean, I think it does something. It's got to do some sort of, I don't know if it's foolproof, but it's got to protect you a little bit. Um, so my understanding is that the aerosols on which the virus travels are actually so small, they don't, That's so it's sort of a misunderstanding. Um, I... So, the, so most of the support for mask wearing has come from these theoretical studies, which is they put a mask on like a dummy or a mannequin and see if it um, stops whatever <laughs> the particles. Um, and that only that suggests it ca captures about 40 or 50%. Um, but the thing is that the observational studies and the randomized control studies all show basically no benefit um, because these like theoretical studies with the mannequins don't account for the real world, the way we like breathe, talk, cough, you know, and plus there's the silliness of like, you walk into the restaurant with the mask and then you sit down and take it off. I mean, all this like theater. That is funny. Uh, <laughs> so what about the N95 masks that, you know, nurses and doctors use? Those are pretty effective, right? Yeah. N95s are actually respirators. They're not masks uh, technically. So they're different and they're made of a material so fine that the, um, that they do capture the droplets, but they're quite, uh, smothering so they're not really practical to wear for a long period of time talking and socializing or whatever we do um so i mean i think what ends up happening you know yes i think if we all wore masks properly all the time it would probably have some benefit but just the reality of it and kids wearing them and taking them off and putting them in your bag and putting them on and touching your face and um we're not really you know they don't really fit tightly around your face i don't think they really have the. and there is a danger too that people feel like they're you know older people for instance might feel safe when they're actually not like they should actually maybe just be standing further away or something okay. um, interesting well it, it has like what i've noticed too with the whole mask thing it's given an opportunity for jerks to be jerks like yeah. <laughs> i have seen so many times where people again i, I like to run on this path and, and it's if somebody is taking off their mask running uh, you'll almost every time somebody will just shout at them or say, put your mask back on. And it's like, so frustrating. Okay. So to wrap it up, what do you think we can learn from the COVID-19 governmental response that we can apply to future pandemics? 
Um, I think when this happens in the future, and it will, we should be much more critical uh, and we should um, be thinking about the costs of implementing whatever measures we're implementing as, you know, we can't, you can't just think uh, in terms of in this one dimension, this one problem. I mean, yeah, okay, if this is the Black Plague and it's killing 90% of people, fine, then we need to shut down the world and focus on that one problem. But anything that, you know, is has a survival rate much higher than that and is um, mostly, you know, fatal to people who are already in poor health and very old, which is not to say like, just let them die. I, I don't mean that at all. But I mean, there, you know, it's a specific segment of the population that can be protected without having to have all these other detrimental effects on all of society by uh, locking everybody down, quarantining everybody. Yeah. And I did not like this term essential worker versus non-essential worker. Um, yeah. It feels to me like the government is picking the winners and losers. And there is a ton of gray area. I mean, out here, the marijuana dispensaries um, were deemed essential. Um, and so I know it just frustrated a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Andrew Cuomo, our governor kept saying, kept portraying restaurants as like this luxury for the, you know, middle, upper middle class. Uh, well, we don't really need them, but you forget, I mean, there are people working in the restaurants, dishwashers and busboys and servers. And a lot of those people are undocumented and might not have another means of earning a living. And, so there are a lot of people affected by this. It's not, it's not just about upper middle class people being able to have a good time. Although right. that's, you know, <laughs> well, you, Didn't you interview a, a couple people who were restaurant owners who were literally crying because it had yeah. such a detrimental impact? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem with the case law, you know, from an attorney perspective, is the last case to really address pandemic law was in 1905, and it was this case, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, um, which basically gave the government the power to um, quarantine people, really to even vaccinate people. Um, but the problem I have with that case is they were dealing with smallpox, which killed one in three people. Yeah. And so the law should be different with a pandemic that kills, you know, less than 1% of the people. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for your time and coming on to my podcast. And uh, I wish you the best. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. 
The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.